0: If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 23. I want to welcome all of our folks that are tuning in on YouTube uh, this morning, Uh, especially uh, we got one, uh, Gustavo in Mexico is on this morning, we want to welcome him and thank him for being part of our church service this morning. But Proverbs chapter 23, and we have been talking about over the last couple of weeks, out of this great chapter, about building a true relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really (coughs) should be the number one goal of everything in our lives. We all have relationships, and uh, some of those relationships are are very close. But there should be no relationship closer than your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In the last couple of weeks, we have looked at and examined two crucial lessons on on what it takes to build a true biblical relationship uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I told you a number of things that I, I think are keys to it, at least they were for me. Understanding how God operates and understanding how Christ operates. And the models in the Bible are simple. If you want to learn how God works and what God does and learn about God, then study His relationship to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament because He is the primary uh, caretaker for Israel in, in the Old Testament. If you want to find out, uh, uh, If you want to find out for the New Testament, Uh, how to have the right relationship and find out about the Lord Jesus Christ and study his dealings with the church. Those two, God with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and in Christ of the church will give you the balance of understanding how the whole thing comes together. And I told you last week, my goal for you, uh, my goal for everyone in this church is that you receive a full reward, that you get to the judgment seat of Christ and you have everything that you should have because of all that God has done for us, helping you to get to the place where you really understand that uh, trying to have a relationship with Christ, um, any relationship really, but trying to get you to see that having a relationship with Christ without truth is worthless. In any relationship, if it's not based on the element of truth, then you really don't have anything. And in relationship with Christ, it will, it will need to be built, as we saw last week, on doctrine. The truth of the Word of God. Or you'll build it on, instead, on your feelings. You'll build it on your emotions. You'll go through life judging things spiritually by how you feel about them. And that is the most dangerous thing that you could ever do. Your emotions will be a self-deception every time in your life. This is why Bible says in Proverbs 25, 28, it says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. If you don't have something, I don't have something to keep our emotions in check, we're in trouble. And of course, that has to be God's truth through God's doctrine and the principles in the Word of God. And today in Christianity, we talked about this the last couple of weeks. Without a solid foundation in the Bible, which it does not have, we see God's people making some of the most horrendous mistakes and decisions that you're ever going to see in life that, will, that in many cases will end any real chance of having a relationship. They'll get so bogged down, so burdened down, so many problems in their lives that they can never get through them to get where they really need to be. And last week I gave you three fundamental doctrines of where a life with Christ will start. And I went all the way back to the beginning, uh, talking about the day you and I got saved. And I told you how that the doctrine of salvation is one of the most crucial doctrines in the Bible. It starts at a place where you trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. But that doctrine alone will not save you. Along with the doctrine of salvation, we talked about the doctrine of repentance. You coming to the place in your life at the moment you get saved, understanding that your new life in Christ is going to take you in a new direction. Old things are passed away. All things become new. And what we find in Christianity today is a, a lack of knowledge of the third grade doctrine. Not only do they not understand the doctrine of repentance, which will lead to the doctrine of salvation, but they don't understand the doctrine of sanctification. Once you get saved, you now are separated from the world. You don't do the same things you used to do. You go in a new direction in life based on your repentance, based on your understanding of God saving you. Everything from that point on has to be based on the Bible. It can no longer be based on your feelings or your emotions. Our feelings change. Our feelings change. Uh, It's the most unstable part of us. And the truth of the Word of God stands no matter what you and I feel or think about it. That's the key. Your life and my life is going to be a roller coaster many, many times. Things are going to come into your life. Circumstances are going to arise. Problems are going to come in. With your family, with your kids... In your own relationship, there has to be something that is absolutely rock solid that doesn't waver. And your emotions will waver. You know, in the, in, the, in the Bible, it talks about that when a person really gets saved and there's a changed life, there's evidence of that. And what we don't see today in Christianity in most cases is people claim to be saved. hey. You're not saved because you say you are. Now, I know that's probably not popular and people don't want to hear that, but I'm just telling you, you're not saved. Everybody in America, if you would ask them if they're saved, they're saved. You're not saved because you say you're saved. You're saved because there's an, listen to me, there is an evidence of your salvation. You can prove it. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says uh, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect uh, will of God. When you get saved, you have the evidence. Back in Jeremiah, I think it's in Jeremiah chapter 32, it's a great passage back there. And it talks about somebody purchasing a field and buying that field. And they're keeping the record, the evidence of that purchase. That somebody couldn't come back later and say, that's not your field, that's my field. And they would produce the evidence that says, "Uh ah, that's my field, there is the evidence of my purchase. Now I know doctrinally, when you're back there, that's a reference to Israel getting the title deed to planet Earth. We don't have time to get into that this morning, but I want to tell you something. That Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, the Bible says you're not your own, you're bought with a price. Therefore, you glorify God in your body and spirit. And I ask you today, if that is really true, if you have really truly been born again, don't tell me what is the evidence that you were purchased, that you were bought with a price. What is the evidence today in your life that the salvation that you claim to have really made a difference in your life. It really was real. Don't tell me, where is the evidence of the purchase? That's the key. And based on the Word of God, the evidence of the doctrine of salvation in your life and my life will simply be the doctrine of repentance. A changed life. We don't think the way we used to. We don't still do the same things we used to. We don't go to the same places. We don't hang out with the same people we used to. Old things are passed away and all things now have become new. And you have separated yourself. Through the doctrine of sanctification, you're now separated. Because when it comes to truly trusting Christ as your own personal Savior... You have to keep your feelings and your emotions out of it. You know, when people get saved, they all react differently. Some people cry when they get saved. Some guys just get up and, and say, well, boy, feels like the weight of the world's off my shoulders. Some people get up and they say, we ready to eat now? And people think, they look at their response And they think that if a person didn't have the right response when they got saved, didn't cry, weep, throw things around, you know, that they really didn't get saved. Let me tell you something. Salvation is not based on your emotional outburst or experience. Salvation is based on, did you do what Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 says? He says in Titus chapter 1 verse 2, In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised. Did you claim the promise? Somebody said, well, I cried. Somebody said, I didn't cry. So we think that one got saved and one didn't. No, no. The evidence of your salvation is not how you reacted when you get up off your knees. The evidence of your salvation is, were you purchased? And does your life display the evidence of that? That's where a relationship with Christ starts. It has to start right there. And you know, years ago, Years ago, uh, there was a little song uh, that everybody was singing, kind of one of those catchy little songs, and it kind of went like this. God said it, I believe it, that settles it for me. And it was a cute little song. God said it, I believe it, that settles it for me. And you know what? That's a nice little song, but it's not very biblical. The truth of the matter is, God said it, that settles it. It doesn't make any difference whether you believe it or not. But that's where we're at today. The absolute, perfect, complete Word of God. Doctrine will do for you what nothing else will do. It will, it will take away the emotions out of everything. You won't have to worry about what you've got to feel about this. There'll be circumstances that come into your life that you'll get a soft spot. And that soft spot to yield is the most dangerous thing that you could do. Something has to hold you between the white lines that keeps our emotions in check. Yesterday in Bible Institute, we started the second section. And the second section now is the doctrinal section. My, my, my. And we're going to get some things done in this particular section. And we we are to align our feelings, my thoughts, my desires, my passions, my emotions to what God says... How we feel about it never really enters into it. We have a Christianity today in many cases, if not most cases, that they have no anchor. And it goes, they just go with the flow. As the Bible says in Ephesians 4.14, they're blown about by every wind of doctrine. They have no defenses. They don't know anything about the Bible. And when something comes into life, they just simply don't know how to deal with it. Great lessons from history. History is one of the greatest teachers for you and for me as a child of God that you'll ever find. Most people don't care about history. Most people don't like history. I can honestly say what I know about the Bible isn't very much, but what I do know about the Bible, I can tell you the enhancement of whatever I know is based on what I learned about history. Learning from history. Every time you find something from the past, it will give more meaning to the present. And if you can remember that truth, it's a great truth, but lessons from history. We're like the book of Judges. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, where it says that there's no king in Israel. And every man's just doing what's right in his own eyes. That's Christianity today. There's no authority. There's no king. There's no law laid down that we have to follow. And we as Christians, we do whatever seems to be right. We just follow the flow if we go to a church, and that church is going this way, we just assume this is God's church. Why? He's a pastor. He's this. They're right. Look at all the nice people. And we just follow. we not ever searching it out for ourselves. But tell you something. The job of every real church and the job of every real pastor is simply to be the anchor for all truth to hold the line for that truth so those who want it can find it. And in this world of total chaos, in this world of complete and utter confusion and disillusionment, God intended the church, His church, this church, the church, God intended the church to be a safe place of truth, a bastion of truth, a bulwark of truth that gave people what they wanted and what they needed, that they could go there and know safely that what they were getting is what God had for them. Not some under the circus big top with the head pastor being the head clown. It's a a place where you can come. A place that you could run to. A place that you could get the protection that you need. A place where you could just rest and catch your breath if the world or Christianity has beat you up. A place to get what you need so you won't lose your kids to the world. Or lose your marriage. A place where the world cannot get to you. A place to get truth. A place to get doctrine. And a place that you get what God has for you to survive the world, the flesh, and the devil. And once upon a time... In this old world of sin, there were the two safest places on earth. Honestly. There was a time when the two safest places on earth was a baby in its mother's womb and a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, preaching church that always had your back. But today it's all chained, isn't it? Babies are ripped from mother's womb through the sinless act of of abortion so they can go on, continue their sinful lifestyle. There's no safety there anymore. And I want to tell you something. Most churches today have become spiritual abortion clinics. They'll take a young Christian, and because they have no truth, they have no doctrine, they're not giving them anything, they abort that young baby's spiritual growth. Oh, no, and we're great. I get calls every month. Will you bring some of your people out? We're going to picket an abortion clinic. No, nah, I won't go there. But if you get me a picket together to go a spiritual abortion clinic, I'll be there. That's what some churches do. And we, you know, we, we just think it's a terrible thing, but we think it's okay. And I'm just telling you. The book of Colossians. <clears throat> book of Colossians has always been, <clears throat> to me, a very important book in my life. I understand that in the book of Revelation, John writes to seven churches. And those seven churches match up to the seven periods of church history. I get that. But when you start to lay it out, you find that when Paul wrote to his churches, he also wrote the seven churches. And when you take the time to do it, you'll find that the seven churches that Paul writes to and the seven churches that John writes to, they'll match and they'll line up. And it enhances the ability to really understand what's going on down through church history when you make that matchup. Book of Colossians. We know that the last period of the church history, the one that we are now living in, is the Laodicea church period. Laodicea means rights of the people. And it's the last church period, starts around 1900, runs up to the rapture of the church, <coughs> And it is the last church period where the church completely loses everything that has any relevance to God. And they move into that gray area of mush where the world now is all pulled together with the world. And the book of Colossians really explains for me, and anybody I guess that wants to make the connection and follow it and break it down, why things are the way they are today. In the book of Colossians, you'll find a reference to Laodicea five times. And when you study the geography to it, you had Colossia, which was a major city. South about all 10 or 11 miles was Laodicea. That's a city. And it would be a lot like Kansas City and then Raytown, or Independence. They're they're in proximity of each other, but they're two separate cities. And you know, and I do, and I know, that we're now in Independence. But if you just get on Forty Highway here and go, what, a couple hundred yards uh, east, now you're in Kansas City. And it's hard to tell sometimes. That's why they put those signs up. You're leaving here. You're going into here. And it's hard to tell sometimes when you cross that line from one city to the other. And I promise you, in the day, it was hard to tell exactly when you crossed the line from Colossia and went into Laodicea. And in Christianity, that's the problem. Because there's no doctrine. Churches have strayed across the boundary lines from the true church of Jesus Christ, and now we're in Laodicea. And we don't even know it, don't even understand it. And, uh, you know, Colossians goes hand in hand with the book of Ephesians. Both books are incredible. Where Ephesians is past truth for the body of Christ, and in Ephesians, he reveals truth about the church. In Colossians, it's present truth for the body of Christ, and he shows how and why we got in the mess that we are in today. I got right next to the, uh, every, every book in the Bible uh, has a, has a uh, Christ is presented uh, in a way, in a book. I gave them to you one time, a long time ago, we went through them. And uh, the book of Colossians, the theme of Christ, or Christ is portrayed as Christ our fullness. And it's a book that shows you that in the last part of the 20th century, in the 21st century, the attack on the Word of God and its destructive force to the church that brought us from the main line of Christianity, we stepped over that boundary, and now, without even knowing it, we're in Laodicea. I have a little note by the work of Colossians, so I'll never forget what the book is for me. It simply says, the book of Colossians. My insight into insanity, and that's exactly what it does. It puts a rhyme and a reason to this insanity that we have that we call Christianity today. And you'll see this before I'm done, I hope. And so you find in chapter 1, I want to give you the quick breakdown here, because it's it's relevant to where your relationship is with Christ. In in chapter 1, he starts to talk about who Christ is all over again. In verse 13, he says, Who hath delivered us? Because somebody forgot who that who is. In verse 14, he says, In whom we have redemption. He does that because the church today has forgot who he is and in whom he is. Verse 15, Who is the image of the invisible God? They have forgotten that. Verse 16 says, For by him were all things created. They've forgotten that. They have The church today has lost every understanding of who Christ is. And what they have is their own Book of Judges mindset, this is who Christ is. Where the world thinks of God as the big grandfather up in a rocking chair with a long beard that just rocks back and forth and checks it out every once in a while, God's people have the same concept that God is just some marshmallow in the sky. That he's okay with everything. That you can live your life any way you want to once you become a Christian. He doesn't care. That they'll be be drinking up in heaven. They'll be smoking up in heaven. They'll be drugs up in heaven. It'll be legalized marijuana wherever you go in the golden city. He says in verse 26 that they have forgotten the dispensation of God. And now that great dispensation of God is now a mystery. He says the dispensation of God is the mystery given to the Gentiles. You couldn't find 20 Gentiles in this city who understand what that mystery is. Because the book of Colossians says they have lost who Christ is. It goes along with the book of Deuteronomy. (coughs) Your first five books of the Bible run like this. Genesis, which is the book of the beginning. And then God puts them down in Egypt at the end of Genesis. He brings them out in Exodus, Leviticus, uh, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the last book of the first five books of the Bible called the books of Moses is Deuteronomy. You know why it's called Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy, Deutero, 2. You know why? Because the nation of Israel had done exactly what we have done. They have went so far, and by the time they got to the book of Deuteronomy, they had completely forgot everything that God told them. So in Deuteronomy, Deutero, second giving of the law, God has to give them all over again what he once gave them. That's where we're at today. You say, well, I'm a Christian. What's the evidence? Don't tell me that. I'm not saying you're not. I'm just saying, what's the evidence? You come out of my property and you try to dig a hole in the back to put a well, I'm going to come out and say, that's my property. You're going to say, well, uh, how do you know? How do I know it's your property? Well, here's my deed. I purchased this. This is, I've got the... I've got the document. I've got the document of the purchase. I've got the evidence that this land is mine. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm digging on your land. What's your evidence? Don't give me this lay to see in gas. Well, I'm a, everybody's a Christian. You Hefner was a Christian. Everybody's a Christian. That's because everybody's got their own idea of what Christianity is. Barack Obama was a Christian. Trump's a Christian. Everybody's a Christian. In fact, I've been in the ministry for almost 50 years, and I've got to be honest, the last five, six years, I can't find a sinner anywhere. Come out, come out wherever you are. Everybody's a Christian. That's because we, in our minds, with our emotions, we decide what Christianity is. No, you don't. And I'm telling you, this is where we're at. We've lost the whole concept. We've lost the whole idea. And now God, in Colossians chapter 1, is going over it all again. Now, in chapter 2, chapter 2 is a real killer. Chapter 2, once you see in chapter 1 that the lady in church has forsaken God, don't even know who he is anymore. Chapter 2 shows us when God was forsaken and the church dumped the truth and the doctrine of the Word of God, it shows now what replaces it. This is vital. He says in chapter 2, verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you. There's people out there in Christianity that want to spoil what you have with God. Did you hear what I just said? There's people out there that want to spoil your relationship with Christ. And these are the four things that have replaced it. The first one is philosophy. That's the first one. Modern day psychology coming into Christianity. I've had my share of Christian psychologists, Christian therapists. I've had my share of them. I've talked to them all my life over the years, and they all basically say the same thing. They claim to be Christian. I'm not saying they're not. They claim to be Christian, but their stand on the Word of God is this. Here's what they've told me. Well, I believe the Bible's truth. But I don't believe the Bible contains all truth. But psychology adds the truth that God forgot to put in the Bible. Now, I don't know where you're at with that, but I'd like to tell you where I'm at. But I'm a godly gentleman Christian, and I can't do that today. But I got a long way to go. I may get there before we get done with this message. And I'm telling you, philosophy... Philosophy. There's a church here in Kansas City that you can get discipled. And after they disciple you two lessons, you know what they do? They give you a psychological evaluation. Now, I don't have to give you a psychological evaluation to know what we're all like, we're all a mess. And what we need is the word of God in our life. And I don't have to psychoanalyze you. I gave up being a psychologist years ago. I don't deal in psychology. As a pastor, I deal in psychoceramics. I deal with crackpots. (laughs) But that's where it's at today. Come on, we'll disciple you. But first, we want to do a psychological profile on you. I'll tell you what your psychological profile is. The inside of you is black as the sides of the bottomless pit, and somebody needs to turn the lights on. Yes. And at the entrance of thy word giveth light. Not a psychological evaluation. Through vain deceit, the second one. Look what we're doing. Oh, look at this great monument we're building to man. Oh, look at this gigantic church building that we've got. Oh, y'all need to put your money into this. We're going to build a church that rivals Solomon's temple. Oh, come and make an investment in this great building. Let me tell you something. You don't build buildings. You build people. I learned a long time ago there's only two things, two things, two things worth investing your life in because they're the only two things that are going to last for all of eternity. One of them is the souls of men and the other one is the Word of God. Everything else doesn't matter. You like our bomb shelter? We had a funeral a while back and some of the big old time people came down to see the, see the church, you know, and they walked through it and they sneered when they saw this place. Yeah, when your place gets blown away when the tornado comes, we'll all be safe down here. Well, I had to fight with Jamie tooth and nail, and she won. But when we rigged to have this place, I wanted to keep the civil defense warning things for atomic attack on the wall. She said they had to go. Building to monuments to man's vain assessment that, wow, look what. God doesn't do anything in buildings. I want you to understand that. God does not do anything in building buildings. God builds people. I was at the gym the other day there's this big guy out there, weightlifter. And he had a t-shirt on. guess he was a Christian. I was going to ask him about the evidence, but he was a lot bigger than I was, and I didn't want to get planted where I stood. But I'd have got him. It had a T-shirt that says, Jesus is a bodybuilder. No, I get that. I know. You wanna, that's a cute little thing. But, but here's the deal. He, he's over there, and he got, you know how it is at a gym? They got mirrors everywhere. And he's sitting there, Watching himself. Then he's up like this. (laughs) I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, (laughs) (laughs) Jesus, sometimes I crack myself up. Jesus, Jesus is a bodybuilder, but he ain't building your physical flesh. But that's where we're at today. Rudiments of the world, the third one. Bringing the world system into Christianity. I have a friend of mine that goes to the same gym that I do. And he caught me one day this week. I forget what it was. He says, I've been waiting for you all week. He says, I got, you got to see this video. He pulls up this video on his iPhone. And before. You all saw the halftime show at Super Bowls. You know, I mean, they're a big deal. Fire coming up out of the stage, smoke, lights flashing, sparks going everywhere, people up on the stage. You know, all those things. <laughs> and I'm watching this. I, I, I am watching this. I must tell you, this was better than the any Super Bowl I ever saw. And you got you got fire coming up, smoke. Lights rolling, sparks shooting everywhere. You had four or five people on the stage. And they were, the guy in the middle was actually doing a little break dances. He was spinning on his head and on other parts of his body. And he was going around in a circle and kicking his legs out. And, and, and the people over here were, they, you know, they're going like this. And, I'm gonna go. and the lady over here, the lady over here had a cat suit on. A cat suit. No, oh, no, no, a cat suit. A little hat with little ears. Uh, maybe they were natural. I don't know. But she had a cat suit on. Tail. And she. and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, why, why, are you, why are you showing me this? What is this all about? And he said, you know where that is? And I said, no. It's One of the largest churches in, in uh, Lee Summit, Missouri. That's their worship service. That's the way they do it. He texts, you know how you can leave the comments? He just typed in, interesting. (laughs) One of the pastors typed back and was defending that this is how we worship God. Really? Really? Like they do with the Super Bowl? Hey, you know why? You know why they got to have fire coming out of the platform? Smoke? lights flashing you know why they got to do that and they get out there and they do all those things you know why it's got to come i'll tell you why because there's no fire power coming out of that pulpit anymore Amen. so you fake it you hire it you bring it in you make it choreography whatever that means you put it all together and it's a show but there's no power in the preaching. There's no power in the Word of God because there's no truth. So what do you do? You bring the world in. Church runs three or 4,000 people. Who wouldn't go to a Christianity that you can go to church and still live like the world? Somebody said, well, we got a real church. Really? Give me six weeks in there and I'll take it down to 200. And I won't do anything. I'll just go up and down the aisle. Hi, Bob Alexander is my name. Can I see your proof of the purchase? Absolutely. What is the evidence? Oh, Jack Hiles, he's dead now. He was something else. He had people that would come to church on Sunday school, but then they would leave after Sunday school and not stay for his preaching. And so he he didn't like that. Jack Hiles, he was a tough guy. 82nd Airborne, paratrooper, D-Day, World War II. And uh, so he dressed one of his deacons up in a devil outfit. <laughs> and they walked up and down in the parking lot. And when the people left the early church service and nothing stayed for his, he, the devil guy would walk up and say, I'm really glad you didn't stay for church today. <laughs> rudiments of the world. The tradition of men, the philosophy, the vain deceit, and the rudiments, making the church just like the world so you'll come to church. What one time, one time, just give me, one time where Jesus ever violated one of his principles so you would follow him. You got the truth, Right in front of you, you decide. That's the way it should be. And the key word in this chapter of the Colossians is the word beguiled. You find it in verse 4 and find it again in verse 18. It says in verse 4 that men in this church age are going to beguile you with enticing words. Verse 18 says they're going to beguile you out of your reward. You know, beguile is a really good word to study in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 says, Paul speaking to the church at Corinth, he says, but I got, I'm afraid for you. I'm worried about you as a church. He says, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety show your minds, the church, Should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. There's nothing complicated about the Bible. Nothing complicated about a relationship with the Lord. It's just built on three basic doctrines the doctrine of salvation based on the doctrine of repentance, and then those two, the doctrine of sanctification. Did you really change the day you got saved? I don't want to hear an amen. I want to see the proof of your purchase. I want to see the evidence. Why, if you went to court before a judge and, and you were defending somebody and, and that person was up for murder and you just said, well, he didn't do it. And he uh, you said, your honor, he didn't do it. And the honor says, well, how do you know he didn't do it? Well, he's a nice guy. Uh, he goes to church. He teaches Sunday school. And uh, the, the, the judge said, well, I don't care about that. I know a guy who was a pastor who killed a guy one time. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, that doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, what, what evidence did you have he didn't kill? Well, I don't have any evidence, but he's really a nice guy. Well, I don't care how nice a guy he is. What evidence do you have that he didn't commit the crime? Well, I don't have any evidence, but you ought to hear him sing. you tie my shoe for me? Absolutely. Thank you. (laughs) Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Thank you. Oh, that's a Star Wars tie, isn't it, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. That's why Luke has to have them, because he's a Skywalker. Okay. And God's people today, the churches, have been beguiled. You know, that's a great story that he's worried about, he says, as the serpent beguiled Eve. Did you ever look at that story, Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 3? Eve's the type of the church, Adam's the type of Christ. They had fellowship with God all day long. When the devil attacked Eve, who's a type of the church, he attacked her when Adam wasn't at home. Picture of the church age. And when he did beguile her, and he attacked her, and he beguiled her, how did he beguile her? He beguiled her by saying, Yea, hath God said, I'm a Christian too. And then he changed what God said. And the beguiling's been going on ever since. I'm just telling you. Chapter 3 and 4. My response to it. As a Christian, what is my response to chapter 1 and chapter 2? I'm living in this world in the middle of the Laodicean church. We are here. You are here. What should our response be as a Bible-believing Christian in the Laodicean church age? Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. If you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Seek those things which are above. Verse 2, set your affections on those things. Set your affections on things above. You see, that's evidence. That's evidence of the purchase. Now, how do you deal with all this? Verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Go back to the book. Get back to the anchor. Get back to the place that is solid for your Christian life, that you don't have to wonder about what it says or think about this. You have the clear direction of the doctrine, of the principles, of the Word of God, which you anchored your soul to at the time of salvation. Why can't you anchor your life every day to it? And the answer to that is where's the proof? Where's the evidence? Maybe you can't anchor your life to it every day because you never anchored to it to begin with. Verse 17, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Oh, wow. There's one for you. And giving thanks to God and the Father. I thought God was the Father. And giving thanks to God and the Father. I'll let you chew on that one for a while. I'll let you think that one through. One of the greatest principles found anywhere in the Bible. On a relationship with Christ. Now the book of Colossians is one of the greatest books that show you and I the insanity of our time. The issues of our time. And it's a sad state of affairs. I I I I I I must confess to you, and I've told you this before. Lord, how I hate the 20th and the 21st century. I, I, I tell you what, I I I I I get it, I understand it, but I must tell you, if I had my own choice in this, and we never get our own choice, and I get it, I'm fine with it, but if I had my druthers, I would have not been born in the 20th and the 21st century in this putrid Christianity. I hate the phoniness. I hate the passiveness. I hate the weak, cowardly mindset of what Christianity is today. All my life, all my life, I've heard them. I've heard them whine about everything. I've had them whine about this. I've had parents, all of my ministry, whine about my kids aren't doing what's right and it's the church's fault. If the church would have not failed my kids, you know what, my kids would be better. And they whine, they whine. They never take responsibility for anything. Your kids are the mess they're in because of no church. Your kids, listen to me, your kids are the mess they are because of your bad parenting. Church had nothing to do with it. Somebody else had. If you gave your personal responsibility for that child over to somebody else and they messed up your kid, that's your fault. Don't whine about it! I'm sick of whiners. In fact, I told Rose, we're carrying a cooler back there with five pounds of cheese in it, 24-7, Rose. You're going to have a little cheese with your wine. Oh, you'll be using that all day tomorrow. What are you talking about? I'm sick of the whining. I'm sick of God's people whining about everything. Well, I'm not happy about this. I mean, you can invest your life into somebody, give them the Bible that they never have, pour yourself into them, and one little thing doesn't go right, and they're a whiner. They whine about this. They whine about that. That didn't happen in the 1600s, 1700s, or the 1800s. Back then, you had men who have courage. Today, nobody has any courage. Nobody has any real commitment. It doesn't go your way one time, and you throw everything else that God has done for you And focus on that one time. You're a whiner. You whine about everything. You complain about everything. And you know what? If we all got what we really deserved, we'd be screaming our lungs out in the lake of fire this morning, begging for water. And you're going to whine? You're going to be a whiner about your family, about the church, about this, about that, about, well, I wasn't treated fairly, or this, that. What in life is fair? We're supposed to live above the circumstances. We're supposed to have the victory in Christ Jesus. I hate whiners. I may be a lot of things, and I am, but I'll tell you what I'm not. I'm not a whiner. I don't whine about anything. I'll just kill you. (laughs) Just kidding. There's no courage today. There's no commitment today. There's no no passion today. There's no conviction today. They're weak. They're wishy-washy. They're always whining about something. And if I had my way, I would have been born and Christianity was really tearing it up. Someplace between 1600 and 1900. Oh, man. Would I have loved to have been Robert Moffat's partner. 51 years in Africa. Buried his wife and his kids on a mission field. 51 years. He endured such hardness. There were times that he had to wrap his stomach with with rope because of the fact that he was so sick from no water and no eating. He persevered. He went on and never whined one time. That's my man. 51 years. 51 years in the outback of Africa, suffering, unbelievable, all to give somebody the gospel. And you get one little thing, your nose bent at a joint, and whine about it all. That's not my world, man. I'm sorry. Stay away from me. I'd rather be with old Peter Cartwright. Old Peter Cartwright was a frontier preacher in the 1800s big old burly guy, kind like Josh. Big, strong, good-looking guy. <laughs> big, strong, good-looking, intelligent, man among men. who his only ambition is to be like me. <clears throat> he'd go out there and he'd, he'd call the roughest guys you ever saw in your life. Call them over to a campfire or go into their camps. And he'd take his Bible and he says, I want to tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. And four or five of them would say, go ahead. He'd start to preach to them. And you know how it is, there'd be a crowd of ruffians that were making fun of him or, or, or cutting into his message. <sighs> He just put his Bible down, pulled him by the neck, took him behind a tree, beat the fire out of him, come back and finish the message. Now that's my kind of guy. Whiner. I hate whiners. Well, you don't know what... Oh, shut up. You know where I'd want to be? I wanted to be a, I would love to have been on a Titanic. No, I would have. (laughs) Because on the Titanic was one of the greatest preachers you ever heard and saw in your life. His name was John Harper. And he was coming over to America to preach at one of Moody's Bible conferences. And the Titanic hit an iceberg. And, uh, and, And somebody testified to this, that they were flashing around in the water that was like 29 degrees. Live time was about four minutes. And they're saying, "What am I going to do? Somebody help me! What am I going to do? What am I going to do?" And out of the cold darkness, they heard this Scotch brogue voice saying, "Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved." That old boy was preaching, going down. Now, you know what we would do if we were on the Titanic today, hit an iceberg, and we're sinking. Ah! <laughs> You'd whine. Why God? Why me? Well, oh, I did this and I did that. Well, oh, why me? Look at, you know so and so that she's a lot worse than I am. <laughs> Whiners! I can't stand them. You didn't have winers in 1600. had wineries, but you didn't have winers. I, that's where I wanted to be. I'll tell you what, old David Livingston. David Livingston left everything and went into the deepest part of Africa as a missionary. He'd been gone for 20 years. Nobody ever heard from him. Nobody knew what happened to him. A New York reporter by the name of Stanley went out to find Dr. Livingston. And I've read the story many, many times. He's he's going through the jungle and they're hacking down these bushes. And he says, we come around after days. We come around this little trail in the jungle and there's a little camp. And there is a bunch of natives sitting around with Dr. Livingston teaching them the Bible. And he comes up to him, which is the famous quote, Dr. Livingston, I presume. That was smart. The only white guy in 600 miles. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, Alex, if you would have been there, it would have been real confusing. I don't know where you're at. (laughs) And you know what? He made such an impact on the African continent. He's buried in Westminster Abbey in London. He died of disease on the mission field. And the natives put his body in a box and carried it all the way to to the to the shore and put it on a ship that went back to Africa. But before they put him in that box, you know what they did? They cut out his heart and they buried it in Africa. I wonder, if you and I would die today, where would they bury our heart? Wrong time for me. I want a time when God's men had steel in their backbone. And they would have booted a pastor out of the pulpit in the church so fast that dumped the Bible, his head would swim. I want to be around men and women who take a stand. Oh, they're sinners, they've got their failures, but they'll take responsibility for their own failures. They won't go through life whining about somebody else. I hate it. But I'm a soldier, and a good soldier never questions his orders. And I'm a soldier who endures a hard, a, a good soldier who endures a hardness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And my orders were made clear to me. My mission started in 1950 and will go till whenever God is finished with me. So I do the job that God has called me to do, in spite of the fact that I hate it here. I know what my job is. I know what my job is till the Lord comes back. That is to train and equip young men and young ladies for anybody that wants the truth to give them the facts, the truth of the Word of God. And I'm not looking to retire, I'm not looking to take a sabbatical. I believe what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 8, that there is no discharge from this war. I'll hold the line and let God send me every young man, every woman, every mom, every dad, every grandma and every grandpa who has the courage and the passion and the commitment and this God-forsaken, disease risen Christianity to take their stand. And honestly, I hate it, but the saving grace for me, I'm just going to tell you the truth, the ultimate blessing of the ministry today to me would be the hardcore, hardline men and women who pick up their weapon in this church and stand their post on the wall and hold the line. We are bonded together through the battles that we have faced. We have our fun times. <laughs> We're always looking for a party. <clears throat> I mean, Tomorrow is going to be a classic example. This is my favorite weekend. I love just hanging out with everybody. I don't have any pastor friends. I don't go to pastor conferences. I, I, I don't go preach to other churches. Not that anybody would have me, but I don't go. I've been asked, and I said, no thanks. I've had my fun in this, On I got one thing I want to do, the people God gave me. Now, shoot, the last time I went, and went to New York. Half of you went with me. Hey, you know, our time together, it's a joke. I mean, it's a funny joke. You ever been to one of our events when you, you try to leave? It takes you 45 minutes to say goodbye to everybody. <laughs> it's like the Waltons. Good night, Grandpa. Good night, Billy Bob. Good night, Susie. Good night, Jamie. Good night, Tom. Good night, Ralph. Good night. Good night, Grandpa. Good, the whole thing all over again. It takes forever to say goodbye. You know why? Because we don't want to leave. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, we look for every opportunity to spend time together. Every pastor who has come in here marvels at the spirit that this church has and says, man, I have never seen anything like this anywhere. And I'll tell you why. Have you figured it out yet? I'll tell you why that is. I'll tell you what is the bond that pulls us together. Because each other is all we have. That book and me and you is all we have to survive. You put your, hands, your life in my hands, I'll put my life in yours. We're together. We work together. We fight together. We play together. We work together. We do things together. And, 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 and I don't want to get philosophical here, but allow me to quote Shakespeare for a moment from the play on Henry V. From this day forward to the ending of the world, But we in it shall be remembered, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he who sheds his blood with me this day shall be my brother. Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 10 says, Cursed is he that bringeth back his sword without blood. We've all been bloody together. We fought the fight. We band of brothers. We pull together. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, Paul said what I feel about you uh, all of my life. He said, yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Aphrodite's, my brother, my companion, my fellow soldier, my messenger to you. That's where we're at. They back in the day took care of each other. They watched each other's back. I'm old school. There's no question about that. And I make no apology for it. My whole life, my whole ministry is built out on the Word of God, but in three hallowed words. Loyalty, courage, and compassion. Those three hallowed words are the foundation of a Christian's life when he walks or she walks with God. Loyalty to the Word of God first and in loyalty to each other, second. Courage, to band together, to stand together, no matter what happens. We hold the line. We make this place a safe place for you to be able to come and get what you need. And compassion, looking at those who have needs. And reaching out to them. Most churches, if you can even get any help. You're down at the bottom, struggling through the mire of life. The pastor, it is, almost said white suit, but I'm not going to say that. The pastor, in in his standing at the top of the stairs, yelling for you to get up where everybody else is. That's not how it works. As a pastor as you and me who minister with him, my fellow soldiers, my companion, my fellow laborers, we know that we walk down those steps and put our arm around them and walk them up those steps one at a time, whatever their needs are, whatever their issues are, whatever their struggles are, realizing that we were once there and God gave us what we needed. We are part of the church militant. We have loyalty. We have trust. We have camaraderie, we have fellowship, and it makes us strong. We have our fun times, we enjoy each other, we laugh at each other, we we make fun of each other, we say stupid things to each other, we laugh and, you know, and we just talk about everything and laugh about it and I'll be saying something and Alex will say something or or Will will say something or somebody else, we just laugh. But I'm not under any illusion. any night at 3 a.m. in the morning when the flares go up and they're coming over the wire on all four points of the perimeter, we will stand together and we will hold the line. That's where we're at. Now, I said all that so far because I want to preach just one verse today. That was my introduction. (laughs) And I'm telling you right now, I'll be good shape. I'm telling you right now, this verse is going to shut me off. I mean, you may watch that video someplace with the fire smoke, but you'll watch the fire smoke come out of this in just a few moments. And I want to preach a verse today that is going to really put me over the top. There are many things that I hate about the later seeing church age, and I preach on them, and I get accused of being negative all the time. I, I do. There's people that came to church here and they said, "Well, I don't like it. He's too negative." I get it. I get it. I get it. It's not my fault. I've told you before. My blood type is B negative. I don't know what else to tell you. <coughs> I had a lady one time. She says, "Well, I kind of like the church, but your preaching just leaves me flat." I said, "Why is that, ma'am?" She says, "Because she says because it's just so negative." And I said, "Well, you got to understand where I come from. I only can in my makeup. I can only please one person a day, and today wasn't your day." Tomorrow isn't looking good either. You know, I'm sure if you know your Bible, you would see that the prophets in the Old Testament, they always had negative messages. They are preaching to God's people right before God's judgment comes down and falls on them. And there isn't one positive thing in anything they preach. In fact, of course, I'm sure you know this, being the positive person that you are. Out of 66 books in the Bible, 25 of them are absolutely, completely negative. There isn't one positive thing in them. Of course, I know you know that. They're preaching the covenant judgment of God to a people who have replaced the very word that God had given them. And the people hated them for it, just like some of God's people do today. See Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. See Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36 through 40. See it for yourself. Because in this phony, plastic, effeminate Passive, worthless Christianity. They hate and reject truth. So here we go. Proverbs 23, 23. Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Let's pray. Father... We thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the truth of the Word of God. Thank you for these good people who stand with me shoulder to shoulder every day, who their lives are not only spent taking care of their families, but taking care of the others in this church, discipling them and working with them and giving them what they need. I thank you, Father, for a church that's free from whiners, men and women who, who when they stop and think about it, would probably rather be with the guys that I were talking about than the ones we have to put up with today. And I thank you for them, this band of brothers, these men and women who love you, love the truth, love the book, and will stand no matter what in the face of all adversity. So help me preach this verse today and let them see and understand where I'm at, where this church is at, and where the Bible is at on this great truth. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. as sake we ask it. Amen. Now, Christianity today has become a big business. The pastor no longer called a pastor in most big mega churches; He's now a CEO. He's a manager. He's in executive position. That comes from the guys over the last 20, 30 years, like the Pat Robinsons, the Jim Bakers, and the Jimmy Swaggerts and the Joe Olsteins, who, um, you know, for all practical purposes, made millions and millions and millions of dollars, lived in palatial palaces on big acreages. I mean, while everybody, common man, was out there trying to get through uh, life, they were living like kings and queens. That's where it all started. They invested in, this, in buildings that are 60 to $80 million, putting that under the bondage of the people. Well, you know what? When you could have bought a butler building for 4 or $5 million, it would have done everything you wanted to do. But it wouldn't have the flash. It wouldn't have the show. When Westcott and Hort come out with their theory on manuscripts to destroy the Word of God, they took the theory and put it forth that the older manuscripts were better. And that was not true. The Laodicean church, when it comes to churches, have put forth another theory, which is just as, just as infallible, and that is that the bigger it is, the better it is. And that's simply not true. The Bible says that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. If everybody thinks it great, it probably stinks. and in this Laodicean and mindset today that when you have a problem, a spiritual issue, you don't get to see the pastor unless you got a lot of bucks. You'll get the on-staff psychologist or Christian therapist. You'll get some second string staff member who is going to uh you know Um, listen to you, who really is not going to what to do, you go to that church and you want to give that church, you tithe to that church, you support that church, and then your daughter gets married and you want to have the wedding in a church, you find that it's going to cost you $600 to rent the church. Your church. Your church. You need help with your kids. You need help with your marriage or some other personal issue. Um, Yeah, we'll help you. We'll help you. We'll help you. But it's going to cost you something. And you'll go see their staff person or their professional counselor or whatever. it costs cost you 50 bucks an hour. You want to learn the Bible? Come to our Bible Institute. Learn everything you can. It's $1,500 a year for tuition. You want to be discipled? We have a discipleship program, $75. You want a class on Christian living? That's also $75. They charge you for everything. And you get nothing back. Some places even charge you to get in admission to come to the church service. Now, we offer special classes here on, on different subjects. Now, here's my problem. We have here Bible study on Thursday night. We have Bible Institute yesterday, the people ministry the next week. We're off for the summer now. We have Discipleship One, Discipleship Two. We have special classes going on all the time. We have an extensive counseling ministry that I have 60, 70 people working with me that people come into And you know what I found? I found that the mindset today is if it doesn't cost something, it really isn't any good. I've had several people call me about the counseling ministry and we talk about their issues and the next question they ask oh, me is, it cho- how much does it cost? And I said, it did not cost anything. They can't believe that if it doesn't cost a lot of money, that it's, in, that, it's, that it's no good. And so I've come up with the little thing, you know, that I tell them, I said, well, it's already paid for. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, the people in my church paid to run the counseling ministry and we pay your fee to come in so you can come. Of course, that's true. You tithe offerings, everything comes in, and I just just turn around a little bit and bump it over and give it to them. (laughs) It's unbelievable. Now, I got my, my little Leland family here. all the way up from Harrisonville. She called me on the phone one day um, and just asked me about our camp because you wanted your kids to come to our camp. The moment you called me, God told me what was going on here, that you were going to be here, that you were looking for more than that. And We began to talk, and then I had a couple of my ladies call you and get it all set up for camp, and you told me yourself that you couldn't believe that you talked to me on Friday, I think it was, and somebody already called you on Saturday. You thought it would be months, years, that your kids would be grown before I would get back to you. <laughs> now, you're being discipled, both of you, aren't you? You come to Bible study. You were in Bible Institute yesterday, too, weren't you? Has it cost you anything? Anybody charge you for anything? Not a dime. Not a dime. You're getting discipled free, both of you? Come to the Institute, nobody was... Checking your pay stub to make sure that you put your money in? No. No. That's because we'll bill you at the end of the month. (coughs) Here's my problem. Here it comes. I'm going to get this out of my system. I'm going to throw up all over everybody. You people in the front row are going to be blessed. How in the world... Do I charge you for something that somebody else paid the price for? How do I charge you for what God paid the price for me to have freely? How do I charge you for something that if I did put a price on it there wasn't anybody on this planet who could earn up enough money to pay for it? When Jesus sent out the twelve in Matthew chapter ten in verse eight he says, "Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils." The the verse that every charismatic quotes up one side and down the other, and then they leave out the next part of that verse. Freely you have received, freely give. When as a pastor or as a church, you start to put a price tag on wisdom and instruction and understanding, you have reached a new level of your corruption. You're a crook. You're so crooked, I bet you've got to screw your socks on in the morning. I mean, I bet you could fall through a barrel of fish hooks and never get stuck one time. I mean, at least John Dillinger, Ma Barker, Babyface Nelson, Alvin Karpis, Bonnie and Clyde, they were honest about robbing people and what they did. You will suck millions of dollars off the people in your church, make them pay for everything, and then when they have a need you got the audacity to charge them for what God gave you freely. You're a crook. Now this verse is the masterpiece of truth on how the ministry we should minister to others. How we give instruction. It's our instruction for the ministry. He says, by the truth. Here's how it works. I want you to get this. Here's how it works. Christ paid the price for me to have His Word. When I recognize what He's done for me through a personal relationship, and I love Him, and it means everything to me, and it's the world to me, then I'm going to pay whatever price i got to pay so you can have it. For almost 50 years of my life, I have bought the books, the tapes, I have done everything I could do to learn the Bible, and I don't know much, but I did it so I could give it freely to anybody that wanted it. I paid the price to learn the book so you could have it free. In 1972, I just got right with God about a year. Mel Shabaka and a bunch of us boys went down to Ixenia, Ohio, to a guy by the down there, Greg Estep. You know who Greg Estep is, Chris? Anyway, he ran a bookstore outside of Columbus. This is 1972. We went down there because we heard that he had all of Ruckman's material. Now, we keep in mind at this point, Ruckman only had two or three books out, nothing on tape. I walked down there and saw that this guy had every book of the Bible that Pete had done verse by verse and taught either in his Sunday school or in his college, uh, in his institute down there. I couldn't believe it. I came home, mortgaged my house, $1,800 in 1972. That was a lot of money, a lot of money today. I mortgaged my house went back down there and bought every one of those tapes. And for the next 20 years of my life, four or five hours a day, I went through every one of those books. I put every note, every passage, every chapter, every verse, and every word. I did the work. I paid the price. Why? So I could give it to you free. That's how it works. He paid the price that I could have it. Now it's my job to pay the price for you to have it. Now, here it comes. It's your job to pay the price so somebody else can have it. By the truth. Sell it not. It won't cost you a dime here. We have a bookstore. I call it the Little Red Bookstore. Not because there's a lot to read, but because it runs in the red (laughs) 24-7. You don't have a wide-margin Bible? I'll give you one. There's a book in there, and you say, "Bob, I really want this, but I don't have the you take the book." I'm not, putting, I'm not putting a price on anything God gave me. Now I know, I know, I, I hear some of you skeptics. Well, that boy, well, you could get taken advantage of. They'll people just come up and tell you whatever so they can have it. That may be. but when we get to heaven, I'll know who you are, and I'll be over in a corner just looking at you. There's no price to the Word of God. There's no charging somebody for what God gave me freely. Freely receive, freely give. You can have as much as you want, whenever you want. Back in Exodus, we we walk around in churches like we get so full of pride and vanity. We think that the truth that we're selling is our truth. Well, it's I'll sell it because I'm the pastor and I preach it. It isn't your truth. It's God's truth. Why, when he wrote the King James Bible and put it out there, it's the only Bible in the history of the world that has no copyright on it. You take an NIV or RSV or any other Bible, you can't print it because it's got a copyright. When God put his word out, he put no copyright on it. You can print that in your basement. You know why? It's free to you. Back in Exodus chapter 16, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. The children of Israel were in the wilderness of sin. And there's no water. There's no food. There's nothing to sustain them. Let me translate that for you to your life or my life. We're living in a wilderness of sin. And whether you know it or not, there ain't nothing in this wilderness of sin that's going to sustain you. And they're hungry. Just like so many of God's people are hungry. They're starving to death. And God supernaturally, supernaturally brought down the manna from heaven, a picture of the word of God. And while they slept at night, it rained down the camp. And when they opened up tent flap in the morning, there it was. God's supernatural food, supernaturally brought right to where the people was. It wasn't found in a dead sea scroll someplace. It wasn't found in a dusty, dead library someplace in the Vatican. It wasn't found in the British Museum or in some scholars locked away in his closet. No, no. God rained down the supernatural Word of God right to where you and I were living. And when they opened up that tent flap in the morning, there it was. And the availability of the Word of God brought on a decision. And the availability of this church and the Word of God brings on a decision in your life. They had to open that tent flap and scoop it up and put it in their pile. Or they just trampled it under their feet and went on about their daily work. And it's the same way with you and me. And that Bible says about the children of Israel... Oh, they were no different than you and I are. It says that when God brought that supernatural food down, type of the Word of God and gave it to them, the Bible says in verse 17, of chapter 16, some gathered more and some less. When it comes to the Word of God, folks, I'm going to tell you something. Freely now, you can have all you want. You can have everything you want here. There's no hold on it. There's no price tag that will stop you. There's no income level where you're at that you can't have what you need to get what God wants. I'd rather stay in this building for the rest of my life and have the money to give you things that you can't afford to help you learn about God than building some Taj Mahal monument to some man someplace and then having to make you pay for everything that God gave us freely. At the ball games, every ball game, I always wanted that job of a guy that runs up and down the steps with the hot dogs. He gets a little white hat and a little white uniform. I'm ready to go. <laughs> and he'll, he'll go up there to have a big tray of hot dogs. I love hot dogs. Tomorrow, while you're all eating ribs, hot dogs, man. 200 of them. That's for just me. You've got your figure it out for yourself. <laughs> but he walks up and down those and he says, Hot dogs, hot dogs, get it while it's hot. I walk up and down this thing and I tell you. Truth, truth, truth. Get it while it's hot. Because there'll be a day coming when I'll be as cold as a day old hot dog and you'll get nothing more from me. Every day of my life, I lost my father in the Lord some five, six years ago. Every day of my life, I think of a thousand things I wished I would have asked him before he went home to be with the Lord. You better get it while you can. You better recognize what you have and that you can have all you want. And you better get your head out of wherever it's at. And you better realize that there's only a window for you to get your truth. And the people, the guys, the gals that you allow to come in, that'll take the edge off of you, So that you want that relationship more than you want the relationship with a book. You better get it while it's hot. Our job is to pay for it. I paid for it. Give it to you. Sell it not. Some of you will pick it up. You'll see the value of it. You'll pay the price for it. And then you'll give it out in the ongoing line of secession of giving out truth. Going all the way back to Calvary where he paid the price initially. And then you and me continually paid a price for somebody else to have what he paid for us to have. The ministry is simply you and I paying the price to get God's word and giving it freely to whosoever will that in time they will pay the price and give it to others all based on their understanding and the wisdom and the instructions they get in the price for their salvation that was paid. The price of their learning about that. And the price of getting wisdom, instruction, and understanding. And being willing to count the cost and then pay it so you can give it freely to somebody else. Because somebody else bought and paid for it for me. So I could give it to you. And now somebody's bought and paid it for you that you can give it to somebody else. Bible says in Hosea chapter 55, verses 1 and 2, it says, Ho everyone that thirsteth, come to ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye. Buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then he says, wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread? The investment of our lives, the investment of people, the investment of investing in the Word of God, and then taking, calling to those who are thirsty, who have no money, who have nothing to eat, and then giving out of the abundance of what God has given to you. And yet some of God's people will go through their whole life and never give anything. You know why? That's because they don't have anything to give because they have no personal relationship with Christ. They've never built anything. They whine all the time. They've been in the Bible now four, five, six years, and they haven't come any farther. And if they're in the Bible another five or ten years, they won't be any farther than they're at now. And the reason is, is because they've got so many mistakes that they've made in their life, so many bad choices that they're not willing to deal with it. All they do is complain about it. And the truth of the matter is, there's no evidence of the purchase price. All of our lives, people that tried to deceive others with a phony Christianity. I've seen it all of my life. They'll blame everybody else for their problems. They'll whine about everything. And they'll put forth this fake, phony, plastic Christianity to try to deceive that they really love God and have a relationship with God. But at the end of their life, the only one they wind up deceiving is themselves, paying the price and counting the cost. Listen to me Christianity is not complicated. Christianity is simply God taking ordinary men and women. Ordinary men and women and then empowering them through the Word of God to do extraordinary things. There's no special, real, strong Christian. Every Christian comes the same way, from the same spot, from the same cross. God wants to take ordinary people and empower them to do extraordinary things. And that's you. That's what he wants for you. You know my favorite sermon that I preach is out of Second Samuel chapter twenty-three, where it talked about David's mighty men of valor. It's always been a great, 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 great inspiration to me, and I've always looked at it as what God has given me here—men and women who are bonded together to battle and the battles that we face. And there's four great qualities found in that chapter that I think are just the key to a real successful ministry and building people. They wanted to be with David. And there's a great parallel. David had his mighty men of valor. They were standing in line to be part of his elite group. Saul had his mighty men of valor. He had to force them to be in his group. They didn't want to be part of him. Now when you look at David's relationship with them and their relationship in that great chapter, and what a great chapter it is, you find the four things, that are the four qualities that make any ministry, any Christian, anything work in a church today. The first one is loyalty. David was loyal to them and they were loyal to David. The word of God and loyalty to each other, a dual loyalty. Then it was courage. They took their stand. One of those guys all by himself took on 800 men, 800 to one. It's not a scribal error. It's 800 men against one and he defeated them. And sometimes in Christianity the odds will be that much against you but you can still have the victory there's one guy in there we always like to pick the big battles there's one guy there that fought all day long for a bean field which shows me that every piece of God's land is worth fighting for so you find the loyalty and the courage and then you find honor They had a relationship with each other. They honored. They knew who they were. They knew who they served. And it was an honor to serve together to serve the Lord. And then the fourth one was determination. They never quit. One guy in there fought with a sword in his hand, wiped out so many guys that when he was done, the muscles of his arm had wrapped around his hand, and he couldn't even drop the sword. What I love about so many of you is the determination that you got here and you're not quitting. Amen. You will go to the duration. You understand, as I do, that there is no discharge in this war. And we we band of brothers, we will stand together to do the work that God has called us to do in these last days, in spite of the odds, in spite of the time that we all disdain and I hate it. But you know what? I'm a soldier. And I've got my orders. And a soldier never questioned his orders. He carries them out. And we have our orders. And that order goes back to you, every one of you, getting everything here you can freely to build the right kind of relationship with Christ. Every head bowed and every eye closed.